The Girl at Central by Geraldine Bonner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Girl at Central by Geraldine Bonner. Chapter One Poor Sylvia Hesketh. Even now, after this long time, I can't think of it without a shudder, without a comeback of the horror of those days after the murder. You remember it, the Hesketh mystery? And mystery it surely was, baffling as it did the police and the populace of the whole state. For who could guess why a girl like that, rich, beautiful, without a care or an enemy, should be done to death as she was? Think of it! At five o'clock, sitting with her mother taking tea in the library at Mapleshade, and that same night found dead, murdered, by the side of a lonesome country road a hundred and eighteen miles away. It's the story of this that I'm going to tell here, and as you'll get a good deal of me before I'm through, I'd better, right now at the start, introduce myself. I'm Molly Morgenthau, day operator in the telephone exchange at Longwood, New Jersey, twenty-three years old, dark, slim, and as for my looks well put them down as medium and let it go at that my name's morgenthau because my father was a polish jew a peace worker on pants but my two front names mary mckenna are after my mother who was from county galway ireland i was raised in an east side tenement but i went steady to the grammar school and through the high and i'm not throwing bouquets at myself when i say i made a good record that's how I came to be nervy enough to write this story. But you'll see for yourself. Only just keep in mind that I'm more at home in front of a switchboard than at a desk. I've supported myself since I was sixteen, my father dying then and my mother, God rest her blessed memory. Two years later, first I was in a department store, and then in the telephone company. I haven't a relation in the country, and if I had, I wouldn't have asked a nickel off them. I'm that kind, independent and—but that's enough about me. Now for you to rightly get what I'm going to tell you, I have to begin with a description of Longwood Village and the country round about. I've made a sort of diagram. It isn't drawn to scale, but it gives a general effect all right, and with that and what I'll describe, you can get an idea of the lay of the land, which you have to have to understand things. Longwood's in New Jersey, a real picturesque village of a thousand inhabitants. It's a little over an hour from New York by the main line, and here and there round it are country places, mostly fine ones owned by rich people. There are some farms, too, and along the railway and the turnpike are other villages. My exchange is the central office for a good radius of country, taking in Azalea, twenty-five miles above us on the main line, and running its wires out in a big circle to the scattered houses and the crossroad settlements. It's on Main Street, opposite the station, and from my chair at the switchboard I can see the platform and the trains as they come down from Cherry Junction or up from New York. It's sixty miles from Longwood to the junction where you get the branch line that goes off to the north, stopping at other stations, mostly for the farm people, and where, when you get to Hazelmere, you can connect with an express for Philadelphia. Also, you can keep right on from the junction and get to Philadelphia that way, which is easier, 
having no changes and better trains. When I was first transferred from New York, it's over two years now, I thought I'd die of the lonesomeness of it. At night, looking out of my window, I lived over Galloway's elite millinery parlors on Lincoln Street. Across those miles and miles of country with a few lights dotted here and there, I felt like I was cast on a desert island. After a while I got used to it, and that first spring when the woods began to get a faint greenish look and I'd wake up and hear the birds twittering in the elms along the street. Hold on. I'm getting sidetracked. It's going to be hard at first to keep myself out, but just be patient. I'll do it better as I go along. The county turnpike goes through Longwood, then sweeps away over the open country between the estates and the farms, and now and then a village, Huntley, La Tourette, Corona, strung out along it like beads on a string. A hundred and fifty miles off it reaches Bloomington, a big town with hotels and factories and a jail. About twenty miles before it gets to Bloomington it crosses the branch line near Cresset's farm. There's a sort of station there, just an open shed, called Cresset's Crossings, built for the Cresset farm people, who own a good deal of land in that vicinity. Not far from Cresset's Crossing, about a half mile apart, the Riven Rock Road from the junction and the Firehill Road from Jack Reddy's estate run into the turnpike. This is the place, I guess, where I'd better tell about Jack Reddy, who was such an important figure in the Hesketh mystery and who—I get red now when I write it—was such an important figure to me. A good ways back, about the time of the Revolution, the Reddy family owned most of the country round here. Bit by bit they sold it off till, in old Mr. Reddy's time, Jack's father. All they had left was the Firehill property and Hochelaga Lake a big body of water, back in the hills beyond Huntley. Fire Hill is an old-fashioned stone house, built by Mr. Reddy's grandfather. It got its name from a grove of maples on the top of a mound that in the autumn used to turn red and orange and look like the hillock was in a blaze. The name, they say, came from the Indian days, and so did Hochelaga, though what that stands for I don't know. The Reddys had had lots of offers for the lake but never would sell it. They had a sort of little shack there, and before Jack's time, when there were no automobiles, used to make horseback excursions to Hochelaga and stay for a few days. After the old people died and Jack came into the property, everybody thought he'd sell the lake. Several parties were after it for a summer resort, but he refused them all, had the shack built over into an up-to-date bungalow, and through the summer would have guests down from town, spending weekends out there. Now, I'm telling everything truthful, for that's what I set out to do. And if you think I'm a fool, you're welcome to, and no back-talk for me. But I was crazy about Jack Reddy. Not that he ever gave me cause. He's not that kind, and neither am I. And let me say right here that there's not a soul ever knew it, he least of all. I guess no one would have been more surprised than the owner of Firehill if he'd known that the Longwood telephone girl most had heart failure every time he passed the window of the exchange. I will say, to excuse myself, that there's few girls who wouldn't have put their hat straight and walked their prettiest when they saw him coming. Gee, he was a good looker. Like those advertisements for collars and shirts you see in the back of the magazines. You know the ones. 
but it wasn't that that got me. It was his ways, always polite, never fresh. If he'd meet me in the street, he'd raise his hat as if I was the Queen of Sheba, and there wasn't any hanging round my switchboard and asking me to make dates for dinner in town. He was always jolly, but a girl in a telephone exchange gets to know a lot. He was always a gentleman. He lived at Firehill, forty miles from Longwood, with two old servants, David Gilsey and his wife, who'd been with his mother and just doted on him. But everybody liked him. There wasn't but one criticism I ever heard passed on him, and that was that he had a violent temper. Casey, his chauffeur, told a story in the village of how one day, when they were passing a farm, they saw an Italian laborer prod a horse with a pitchfork. Before he knew, Mr. Reddy was out of the car and over the fence and mashing the life out of that dago. It took Casey and the farmer to pull him off, and they thought the dago'd be killed before they could. There was talk in Longwood that he hadn't much money, much the way the Reddys had always had it, and was going to study law for a living. But he must have had some, for he kept up the house and had two motors, one just a common roadster and the other a long gray racing car that he'd let out on the turnpike till he was twice arrested and once ran over a dog. My, how well I got to know that car! When I first came I only saw it at long intervals. Then, just as if luck was on my side, I began to see it oftener and oftener, slowing down as it came along Main Street, swinging around the corner, jouncing across the tracks, and dropping out of sight behind the houses at the head of Maple Lane. "'What's bringing Jack Reddy in this long way so often?' people would say at first. Then, after a while, when they'd see the gray car, they'd look sly at each other and wink. There's one good thing about having a crush on a party that's never thought any more about you than if you were the peg he hangs his hat on. It doesn't hurt so bad when he falls in love with his own kind of girl. And that brings me, as if I was in the gray card speeding down Maple Lane, to Maple Shade, and the Fowlers, and Sylvia Hesketh. End of chapter 1